RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode two of our case studies season, Just Science sat down with crime scene technician Brian Turner and Detective Roberto Caceres from the Broward County Sheriff's Office to discuss a new methodology for processing fired cartridge cases. When a cartridge case is recovered from a crime scene, investigators must typically decide whether to swab it for DNA or process it for latent prints. The Broward County Sheriff's Office has developed a promising new technique that involves processing a cartridge case for both DNA and fingerprints, leading to more evidence available in shooting cases. Listen along as Brian and Detective Caceres describe what factors affect recovery of evidence on cartridge cases, how the MVAC and the recovery LFT systems are utilized in tandem to process for DNA and fingerprints, and case examples highlighting the success of this new method. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Jacqueline McKay. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline McKay, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. On today's episode, we will discuss a method developed by the Brower County Sheriff's Office for the recovery of both DNA and latent prints from fired cartridge cases. Here to guide us in this discussion is crime scene technician Brian Turner and Detective Roberto Caceres. Welcome, Brian and Roberto. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Likewise. Thank you very much. Brian, would you mind telling us a little bit about your role at the Brower County Sheriff's Office and what your background entails? Sure. Um, I'm a crime scene technician. I'm a civilian position within the, our crime scene unit. Um, I've been there for about four years now. Prior to that, I also worked for the Brower Sheriff's Office in their biometric identification unit, analyzing fingerprints as a temperament examiner. I have a master's degree in forensic science, currently enrolled in a doctor of forensic science program at Oklahoma State University. I just started that program, so I'm now pursuing that. I process crime scenes like our, our sworn counterparts and process evidence and do everything that they do. <laughs> Congratulations and good luck in your degree program. Thank you. Roberta, same question for you. Would you give us an overview of your role and your background? Absolutely. So in 2002, I started with the Broward Sheriff's Office as a cadet at the police academy. 2003, I finally graduated and went to the uh, road patrol operations. And then in May of 2008, I was transferred to the crime scene unit where I have been since. In November, I start my 22nd year and I will have 16 years in forensics. With that being said, currently I am an adjunct instructor at the local police academy teaching the crime scene curriculum of the state. And I am also the region five director for the Florida division of the IAI. Nice. Brian, after collecting cartridge cases on scene, a crime scene investigator must decide how they are processed. Can you explain why choosing between latent prints or DNA can prove to be a dilemma? Depending on an agency's uh, equipment and their capabilities, they may often have to choose whether they're going to swab a fire casing for DNA or use a traditional fingerprinting method such as cyanoacrylate fuming or the vacuum metal deposition machine to try to process for latent prints. 
because of the size of a fire casing, you're often limited in how much you can process. So if you decide to swab for DNA, you may swab away that fingerprint residue and hinder yourself from developing latent prints. Or if you decide to use go for latent prints, if you use cyanoacrylate fuming, for example, you can't then go and swab for DNA because now you've kind of locked in that DNA with the superglue. What is the typical yield for traditional swabbing methods? And what about latent print processing as well? For swabbing methods of fire casings, it's typically yielded less than 1%. Most studies have shown that. Um, A lot of agencies don't even accept swabs because of such a low yield. As far as fingerprints, um, it's typically also a lower yield as well. Um, I don't have the exact number, but again, it's because of the mechanism of of a gun firing. It's going to burn off a lot of that residue um, that's typically needed for the development of latent prints. So you've already kind of touched on this, but because cartridge cases are so small, there's not a lot of surface area for you to get a lot of latent print or friction ridge impressions and DNA. So why are the chances of recovering both DNA and latent prints limited in cartridge cases? So it, a lot of it has to do with the, the mechanism of the firing of a gun. So when a gun is fired, it, it produces a lot of heat. And the heat's going to burn off your DNA. It's going to burn off your fingerprint residue. Um, and then when that fired cartridge casing is ejected from the firearm, it could land on a surface. Um, and that could also then further inhibit those uh, developments or the recovery of that DNA. If it is, let's say, for example, in a field there's microbes in the grass that are going to start to feed on that DNA. So that's going to also hinder your development of the DNA. Thank you for explaining that for us. Roberto, I'm going to switch to you. Your agency has developed a new method in which you can process cartridge cases for latent prints and DNA. Can you describe this method for us? Sure. So to process the cartridge casings for DNA, we have in our hands a machine called a microbial vacuum machine. The machine uses a buffer solution, which is mixed with Kelix beads, and we spin it in a vortex machine. And with that, we pass it through a filter, which will possibly have the DNA that we would need. And then as far as the fired casings, we have a recover machine that we use where we insert the cartridges into this glass dome that's covered. And then with uh, preset chemicals that are pre-measured, once we turn on the machine, It adheres to any of the residues that are on the cartridges and develops the fingerprints that we need. What led to the development of this method and how useful is it proving? We're very busy in our county. And with that being said, we have a a lot of cases where we need to process these types of evidence. And these types of evidence are not only fire casings, other types, but for the most part, we have uh, fire casings that we would love to obtain not only DNA, but also the fingerprint patterns that they possibly could have. We do a lot of research. We do a lot of uh, findings as far as online or even reaching out to other agencies or companies as far as the latest technology that we can find. And with that being said, through obtaining these types of equipments and also doing case studies or even uh, scientific studies using the equipments and stuff like that, we are able to not only validate our equipment, but also use it as part of our processing methods for cases. Do you have any case examples of where this method has proved useful in an investigation? Yes. I actually received a case that had five casings from another agency that they had a homicide. They forwarded the casings to me, and using the MVAC machine, I was able to obtain a full profile for a suspect uh, that they, at that point, 
as far as my knowledge uh, gives me, they did not have a suspect in custody or even named. And I was able to, through the methodology, be able to obtain a suspect name that they went on and did actually, in fact, committed the crime. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great methodology, in my opinion. So, Brian, I'm going to switch back to you and talk about how this method starts at the crime scene. So can you walk us through if there's anything specific that you do on scene to prep for these processing methods later down the line? So the method that we use with the MVAC system, it's a very sensitive DNA processing. So we have to be extremely careful when we're on scene to not introduce our DNA onto those fire casings because we could end up detecting that instead of the person that used those fire casings. So we have to wear our proper PPE. So at minimum, we have to wear a mask and face coverings as well as our gloves. We've also switched from picking up the fire casings with the gloved hands to picking it up with sterile instruments like uh, sterile cotton swabs or sterile tweezers. Again, to try to prevent any trying to cross contamination from our gloves to that the surface of the fire casings. We've also, through studies, have they have found that we used to collect them in a, a paper coin envelopes, but the paper coin envelopes would actually absorb some of the DNA, so we were losing some DNA. So we have switched from the paper envelopes to glycine envelopes, which are like a waxy coated envelope. And this will help us prevent any DNA loss in the collection. Switching to those glycine envelopes, was is that an expensive envelope compared to paper? They're about comparable in price. So in my previous crime scene days, we tried to take a picture of every head stamp that we found. So when we found a cartridge case, we always tried to take a picture of the respective head stamp. So that way, you know, we could properly document it and know exactly, okay, this cartridge case with this head stamp was found at this marker and kind of have our photos to supplement our written notes. And th this definitely saved us a few times down the line. But the downside to this is you kind of have to manipulate the cartridge cases a little bit to get it in the proper orientation to take said photo. So with minimizing touching of the cartridge cases and collecting them with the wood ends of swabs or with tweezers, do you take photos at all of the head stamps? So we'll take our normal crime scene photographs, our overalls or intermediates and close-ups, but we stopped taking photographs on scene of our, our head stamps to minimize our contamination of the fire casings. We actually recently got a new system called the Ballistics IQ, where after we do our DNA processing, we can enter and scan those fire casings in, and it'll actually generate a report of all the head stamps. So we can have that as a reference for writing our reports or for our firearm examiners. Uh, it's kind of like a preliminary screening for them. So we can do that post-DNA processing and still have that information from the head stamps. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Roberto, now that we have the cartridge cases collected and we've transported them back to the lab, what is the next step in this new methodology? So the next step is to individualize the casings. From the scene collection, they will already be in their own glassine envelopes and we have to separate them by groupings. So for example, if we have 15 fired casings or fired cartridges on the exterior of the scene and they're relatively within the same grouping, we will group them in their envelopes, but we will group them, we'll make that group A, for example. The rest of the following casings that were found, let's say inside the house, or and even the house can be separated, but let's just say they're in the kitchen area, those will be group B, and if we find some more in, in a vehicle, that will be group C. And the reason we do that is because collectively, if we have a group of casings, it is safe to say that the shooter was within the same area. Now, if we have two different calibers, we either have two guns from the same shooter 
oh, we have two shooters. That's the case within the same grouping. So let's say we have a 9mm and we have 40 or 45s. What we'll do is we will separate that and make a subgroup. So we'll have a group A and a group B within the same big group. Once we have that, once we determine that, that they're the same calibers, what we'll do is we'll start gathering all of our materials that we need in order to start the MVACing process. When using the MVAC process, have you had a case where you've been able to develop a full quotas profile from the MVAC? Yes, there has been, yes. Uh, both fire casings and the uh, traditional methodologies of the MVAC uh, DNA collection, which is what we acquired the machine for, which we use the nozzle heads to collect possible DNA from clothing or any other porous surface. But as far as the fire casings, absolutely, yes, we have. You've mentioned that your agency does a lot of research and they're really at the forefront of new technologies coming out. But you also mentioned that another agency submitted cartridge cases to you guys for processing. Is this a technique that you're willing to do for other local agencies or are you trying to train other local agencies to adopt this technique? Is there any collaboration in that regards? So let me first start off by saying that the collaboration between agencies, whether they are city, state, or federal, is huge, in my opinion. Uh, the way that we teach, the way that we learn, it's through collaborative unions. And with that being said, other agencies that need our assistance, we will help them. We will definitely guide them, if need be, to the point where they can actually acquire or obtain or purchase their own setup equipment and use our machine, which has happened. With that being said also, um, if there is an agency that does not have the funds for it and that needs to solve a case because we're talking about homicides, we're talking about the murder of one person to another, or even cases where there are serious injuries, there is no limit as to as far as the help that we can give them. So if an agency does need assistance, and I've had agencies all the way from California to Florida requesting the assistance of the usage of that machine. I've had other agencies within a state send me their evidence to process with positive results for a full profile of a, either a suspect or a victim, that which is what they needed. So as far as um, the assistance, it will always be there because, again, that's how we learn and we teach at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's really great. I know it's so helpful when agencies can depend on each other and utilize everyone's resources. It definitely helps with case resolution as well as investigations. Absolutely. So you mentioned that at the crime scene, you're wearing proper PPE, you're collecting cartridge cases with the wooden end of swabs or tweezers, you're packaging them in glassine envelopes, talked about how the MVAC was used to try to get potential DNA off of these cartridge cases and that they're grouped based on where they were found, but also based on the caliber of the ammunition. Um, so at this point, it then goes into processing for latent prints. So Brian, can you walk us through how that part of this method goes? Sure. So we use a system um, from Foster and Freeman called the Recover LFT, and it works a little differently than most of our typical fingerprint processing. It doesn't rely on the traditional fingerprint residue to be left on the surface. So if an object has been washed clean, or in our case, where we're already processing for the DNA, we've kind of washed away that fingerprint residue. The way the recover system works is it develops the corrosion fingerprint, so to say, of the impression that was left behind. So when a fingerprint touches a metal surface, the oil and the residues start to corrode the metal. 
So after metal objects have been washed clean, we can develop that corrosion signature with that their unique uh, proprietary chemicals. You mentioned that the cartridge cases can be entered into Nyman, and that's how you can get a record of all your head stamps. Does that happen prior to this latent print portion of this method or after? We can do it either prior or um, after. If prior, we just make sure we're not contaminating, obviously wearing, again, the proper PPE with gloves and everything to make sure because the sensitive DNA processing has already been done. So there's not an issue with scanning the fire casings and then at that point. Okay. Are there any factors that could affect how successful this method is, whether it be from the environment or from a subject? So some of the environmental factors that could affect the collection of DNA and or the recovery of Friction Ridge would be the location. So are the casings laying on the pavement for a couple of hours in 90 or 100 degree weather where it's really sunny and the sun is just beating down on the casings? Are they in a air-conditioned room, you know, 75 degrees, 70 degrees, nice and cool? Or are they in an open field where there's dirt and there's uh, grass and little animals walking around? Because remember, the transfer of DNA is very, very sensitive. So those are some of the factors environmentally. Also, how long have they been there? So if a shooting happened at midday, was the collection of the fire casings within a couple of hours? Or are we talking about a shooting where we collected the casings uh, days later or even sometimes when we have to wait for a search warrant, mm-hmm. right? So, again, because of the location, where is the search warrant? And how long is this going to take for the search warrant to be executed? Two hours, three hours, seven hours? We get all those. So those are some of the factors that, that we face. So the, uh, the subject that handles the firearm is also a factor that can affect whether we recover DNA or fingerprints. Um, some people are known as a shedder. Um, so when they touch a surface, some people are more likely to leave DNA or fingerprints behind because of just their, their characteristics of their skin, their own DNA, whether they tend to have greasier, oilier skin, or if their skin cells tend to shed off a lot quicker than other people. We also found that when somebody handles a, fire, a live cartridge before it's loaded into a magazine, if they handled it more often than others, they'll leave more DNA or more chance of a, of a fingerprint being developed on that, that casing later on. As well as if when the fingerprint is touched on the fired casing, if it is allowed to sit there for a little bit longer before it's fired, the oils and the residue from the fingerprint will create a more distinct uh, corrosion signature on that, that casing later on. Thank you for explaining that. So we mentioned that you were able to develop a full CODIS profile uh, from the MVAC system. Have you been able to develop any APHIS quality fingerprints from the fingerprint development portion of this method? So far we've had, that I know of, we've had three successful full APHIS quality fingerprints that were developed from a, a fired cartridge casing. That's pretty remarkable, especially when we think about the yield that we were talking about earlier. That's that's fantastic results. Yes. Prior with like the super glue or the VMD, we weren't getting as many friction ridges as we are now getting with the recover system. Are the individuals in the Brower Sheriff's Office crime scene unit the one collecting the cartridges, processing for DNA and processing for latent prints? Yes. At our agency, we do the processing on the scene. We collect it, we process for DNA, and then we process for the latent prints. In other agencies, they may, the crime scene people may just do the crime scene aspect and then bring the evidence to the lab, and their lab people may then further process it for DNA or latents. 
I would assume with validating this method, you had to work really closely in conjunction with your crime lab. Can you talk about what went into trying to validate this methodology and what sort of collaboration was needed in order to get this new method off the ground? Sure. When we got the uh, recover system, I uh, worked doing the validation study of the recover. So I tested it compared to the super glue and the VMD methods. So what I did was I had different metal surfaces. I placed fingerprints on, on the metal surfaces and I allowed ample time in between each one and tested it. I also washed some of the substrates and then tested them from each of the three different methods. And the ones that were washed, the only ones that developed fingerprints was the recover system. So it, it further proved that we can do that post our DNA processing. This method seems to fill a critical gap in forensics labs, especially with the amount of gun violence that we face. Are there any plans to keep improving the current methods? And what is your ultimate measure of success? So for the MVEC system, what we're trying to improve is we actually bought a 3D printer. And we're trying to develop trays where we can place the fire casings to make it easier for us to be able to collect and uh, sort out. We're also developing... Uh, some sort of tweezer-like contraption where it'll make it easier for us in the field to collect the fire casings from the ground as opposed to just using the wooden end of a sterile swab because sometimes we'll collect it and it'll fall off the swab because mm -hmm. there's nothing making a resistance. So that's what we're developing with a 3D printer. Yeah, and even if a cartridge case is head stamped down, you know, it would be very Correct, hard because at this point we're using the, the wooden end of the stick like a shovel. Yeah, yeah. And hoping that it won't fall off that exactly. quote-unquote shovel in order for us to put it inside the glassine envelope. And sometimes, I'll give you a scenario. It's about 90 degrees outside. I'll, and I'll keep it nice and cool. It's 90 degrees outside. <laughs> Right? The humidity is about maybe 65%. You guys are based in Florida, Oh, right? yes, we are. All South right. Florida. So, Let me, so that's South generous. <laughs> yeah, 90 degrees. It's nice and cool. About 65% humidity. We are sweating. And we're not even wearing any type of Tyvek suit. So we are gloved up, sweating. Forehead is all beaded up with sweat. And we're trying to open this envelope with, on one hand, using our the pinch, you know, the pinch system, trying to open it up. In the other hand, we have this casing that is being held by the wooden end of a stick, and we're trying to put that inside the envelope. So with that, imagine doing that 15, 25 times, over and over. It gets tedious. And again, developing some type of equipment or contraption using the 3D printer that we can sterilize and use it in the field will probably make it way much uh, efficient and quote-unquote cleaner for us to be able to uh, continue working because it's not just collecting casings, as we all know. It's other stuff that we have to do on scene. Mm -hmm. So that's just part of it that takes up a lot of time. So we've also just uh, instituted a, a new policy with our fire casings as of last week. When we recover our fire casings from the crime scene, we're now putting it in, in an incubator and allowing it to kind of like cook basically for at 40 degrees Celsius for anywhere from two to 24 hours prior to us doing the MVAC processing to help us to retain that DNA and keep those cells viable so that way we can get a higher yield with our DNA profiles. Can you walk me through a little bit of how you actually MVAC the cartridge cases? Because I, from my understanding of the machine, it has kind of like a vacuum. So do you put the cartridge cases in a solution and let it soak and then run that solution through the MVAC? The first thing we do is we have a conical tube and we will place two grams of Kelix beads in the conical tube. And the Kelix beads are sort of, think about a diaper that 
gooey, absorbent uh, material inside a diaper that's kind of grainy. That's what the keyless beads uh, remind me of, at least. Um, so we put two grams of that, and then we fill the conical tube with about 20, a little bit less than 25 milliliters of buffer solution. After that, we vortex the buffer solution with the Kilex beads in order to dissolve that material. And then one at a time, we place the casings inside of the solution and we vortex them for about 30 seconds each. So once that is done, we run the buffer solution through a pre-filter. And what the pre-filter does, it collects right at the filter level, it collects not only the used Kilex beads, which at this point is like a mushy material, but also any other inhibitor like small metals, dirt, uh, little rocks, if it has a little rock attached to it, any grass blades or any other, like I said, any other type of inhibitor. So it's for us to have a cleaner solution. Once we obtain the clean solution, what we'll do is we'll grab a funnel and place it inside the Nalgene filter in order to reduce the amount of space where the solution will run through the filter. Once that filter is used, we cut it with a sterile scalpel and then we place it in a petri dish and ready to go to the lab. You mentioned that you put each individual cartridge case in its own conical tube. Is that correct? So we use the same conical tube for the grouping. For the grouping. So if we have two in group A, it will only be two. One at a time, though. Because then after that, we don't know which one is which. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as itemization and catalog for cataloging purposes. If we have 15 in the same group, then we do all 15 just one at a time. That makes in sense. In the same solution. Okay. Are there any things that can inhibit the recover lift system from developing fingerprints on cartridge cases? So one thing that we have found that has been a factor in affecting that is most American-made ammunition has a shiny coating to the outside of the cartridge casing. Um, so sometimes that inhibits that corrosion of the metal because that's the purpose of the, the coating is to prevent the corrosion. When we have cases where we have more foreign made ammunition, they don't have that coating on there. So we've found that we were getting better fingerprints on those types of cases than the ones from American made ammunition. That's really interesting. Speaking of getting better rates, Roberto, could you touch on what your success rate has been for developing DNA profiles pre and post using the MVAC system? Absolutely. So let me first start off by saying that prior to obtaining the MVAC machine, and going through all these methodologies that we go through now for obtaining DNA, we used to, our protocols were to swab the fired casings. With the swabbing method of fired casings, which is the traditional method of collecting DNA, we were obtaining less than 1% of success for any type of DNA profile. After obtaining the MVAC machine and the methodologies that we have developed throughout the probably last four years, four or five years, we now, our success rate has gone when we first started doing our trainings from 11% of success to the latest that we have up to date is about 17 to 19% of success return rate, which is great. If you think about it, for every 100 case that we work, we have about 17 or 19 cases that come back with a full profile just on the fired casings. And that is not to include any other pieces of evidence that we can submit to the lab, for example, fingerprints, any type of blood evidence, any type of trace evidence. This is strictly DNA off of fired casings that can be solved, and it's about 17 to 19 out of every 100. We want to obtain at least a 25% return, which I think we will obtain it eventually. But as for now, our numbers continue to increase. And with the number of cases that we obtain every year, 
we I believe that we'll be on the right track to obtain that only because we continue to work on it. It's not something that, that just stays stagnant for a couple months because we don't get shootings. We get shootings all the time. So we'll definitely be able to work on that as we go along. So do you think you can hit that 24% success rate just with working more cases and utilizing this technique on more cases? Or are you guys still trying to make tweaks to this process to keep increasing that success rate? We want to improve on the methodologies that we're using, whether it's to add another item of equipment or to remove something in order to lessen the transfer of DNA. One of the things that we recently did was remove all of the DNA equipment, including the MVAC machine, from the general processing area and move it to a room where it's more sterile, cleaner, and less frequented by visitors. And because of that, hopefully we'll be able to have less of a mixture from an unknown that is actually coming from the office or from our lab. Coming from a previous forensic serologist, I am very impressed with all of your procedures to try to keep things sterile and wearing masks when you're collecting any sort of evidence that's going to be sent for DNA testing. So I, I'm very impressed. Uh, we have to because unfortunately, I mean, we want success in our in our case rates mm -hmm. or case returns. But at the same time, uh, you know, going up to a jury and explaining why somebody that retired a year ago is coming up in our casings, mm -hmm. it's embarrassing. So one of the things that we always, always, always keep in mind is going to be that transfer of DNA. Let's lessen it in order to get what we really need, which is a suspect or a victim on the surface of these casings. I'm really interested to see how once you start 3D printing new tools to collect cartridge cases to see how that might impact uh, the results that you're seeing. So that's really yeah, exciting. I'm, inter I'm interested too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your agency is using a lot of interesting technologies in this methodology. Could you talk to what the training process is like for your crime scene unit in order to be able to utilize these tools? Yeah. So during the FTO training and ours is nine months, there is a week block where the usage of the MVAC machine as well as the recover system is not only introduced, but also the trainee gets to work in-house cases where they can show their proficiency on these, on these methods and the machine. As time passes by and new methods are developed or refresher training needs to be done, us in our unit, we actually do it as a group so that everybody is basically in the same mindset as far as the, the usage, the methodologies, and the deployment of the machines. We want everybody to be in the, on the same boat because it's not fair for someone to be trained fully on this machine and the next person to have half of the training and then they can explain themselves in, either in court or in general. Kind of a, along those same lines with all these different technologies that you guys are using, could you talk to me a little bit about the cost of using these technologies and any sort of funding that might be available? Sure. So the MVAC, because of the sensitivity of the DNA collection, uh, a lot of it is consumable. So the cost can escalate quickly from that. So we've actually been able to work out, especially with our fire casings, um, we can utilize most of the stuff multiple times um, as long as we're not contaminating that sterile solution or that the nozzle head to get the solution from. But if we're processing an, an article of clothing or something, all of those consumables have to be changed out between one article and the other to keep that sterile environment. 
Um, so we have worked out the cost where for our fired casings, it's about $150 per case with the consumables and the material that we use to process each, each one. Um, some agencies that are not able to necessarily afford the MVAC system may just buy the consumables and use another agency's system. We work with a lot of agencies where they'll do that. They'll buy the, the consumables, come to our office and use our system um, with their, their supplies and do their own processing to kind of save some costs at their agency. There are definitely um, some grants out there that agencies can apply to that is there for equipment to supply to a, a police agency to have these types of uh, devices in, for their use. And when thinking about going from a less than 1% yield to fingers crossed 24, I mean, that's that's a low price to pay for getting leads. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about major crimes here as far as a homicide or even a shooting with serious bodily injury. We're not talking about small burglaries. Not that I'm downsizing, but considering the cost of the materials, just like Brian said, as well as the labor, it's a small price to pay to get justice for these families, uh, for their loved ones. I thank you guys for all your work out there. And thank you for taking the time to discuss this method with me. It truly has been a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Jacqueline McKay, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Laura Matson to discuss the value of footwear investigative leads as a resource during investigations. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.